Amen. Let's uh, let's remain standing for the reading of God's holy word. Today's text uh, comes from John chapter one, verses twenty nine through thirty four. And the word of the Lord says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The Word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You can all be seated. Today, we're continuing our ongoing journey through the book of John. And as always, we begin by reminding ourselves of what the entire purpose of this book is. The central theme of the book of John, we find it in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It reads, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this book, this entire book of John is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now we've also talked about uh, how what, what the definition of life is that John's talking about. By life, John means eternal life. Last week, we talked about what eternal life means, John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So this entire book, all of the book of John, is about knowing who Jesus is and having this new a transformed, never-ending relationship with God that's only available through Christ. So today we're going to hear some more eyewitness testimony about who Jesus is from a pivotal figure in the New Testament, John the Baptist. But before we get in too deep, I want us to take a, just a minute and clear our heads and pray. Let's, let's pray. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today through the hearing of your word. We all have different worries and struggles and histories and baggage, but I pray today that you would remind us of who you are and that in Christ you offer us a life that may not be without trouble, but it's a life that we don't have to walk through alone. God, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remind our hearts today of the things we forget too often. God, remind us that our faith in you doesn't depend on any set of rules or regulations that we have to follow, but that you invite us into new life through the blood you shed on the cross and the power of the resurrection. God, change us from who we are into who you desire us to be in Christ. God, heal us, change us, and reveal to us 
the depth and the height and the width of your amazing love. God, help us to know you more. It's in the beautiful and lovely name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So let's start at the beginning of today's text, okay? We're going to unpack this piece by piece and talk about what it means. And we'll start in verse 29. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we're going to cover all of today's text uh, today and next week. But we got to camp right here for just a bit with this phrase, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This little descriptor for Jesus, Lamb of God, sums up a ton of ideas about Jesus. It encapsulates all of the love and the suffering and the triumph associated with Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. The language describing Jesus as the Lamb is extremely significant, and it would have been especially meaningful to the Hebrew culture of the time. For them, the idea of a sacrificial lamb, a lamb that gives its life to pay the price for sins, goes all the way back to Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, in Genesis 22, 8, where he said, God provides the lamb for the sacrifice. Then we see the lamb again in Exodus 12. God instructs the people of Israel to put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts so the angel of death will pass over them and they'll escape God's judgment. In Exodus 29, lambs are sacrificed for the glory of God and for atonement so people's sins can be wiped away. And Isaiah 53.7 describes the suffering servant the one who would bear the sins of many as a lamb. And in the book of Revelation, John, who wrote the book of John, goes overboard with this. And 29 times in the book of Revelation, he describes Jesus as the Lamb of God. So there's an incredible deep importance to this language that John the Baptist is using to describe Jesus. So when John the Baptist uses this wording, behold the Lamb of God, we also have to remember that John the Baptist has been preaching in the wilderness and this amazing revival has broken out and hundreds and even thousands of people are coming to hear him preach and they're repenting of their sins and then they want to be baptized in the Jordan River. And this revival has gotten so big that religious leaders have taken note of it and the scribes and the Pharisees are coming to check out what's going on. Hey, you know you're having a big revival when preachers from other churches show up to hear it, okay? So this is what's happening here. So now Jesus shows up, and John, who has become a pretty big deal, tells this to the crowds. He says, hey, it's time to take your eyes off of me and focus on Jesus. This is the one I've been telling you about, the one who's going to take away your sins and make you clean. Now, we have to remember that John the Baptist isn't the central character in this story. He's a witness. So what John is doing is pointing at the key figure in the redemption narrative. He's pointing to Jesus. So specifically, John's statement points us to what Matt Chandler calls the relieving work of Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus relieve us from? What does Jesus take away? What does the Lamb of God take away? He takes away our sin. 
Now, we have to think about that for a moment here and consider sin in a way that extends beyond just moral behavior. Because typically we operate under this idea that we are sinners because we're sin, right? And we can fix that problem. We just stop doing that sin stuff and then we're not sinners anymore. But the, the idea of sin that, that John is talking about here is more insidious, insidious and it's more inside of us. It's deeper than just moral behavior. We don't become sinners because we sin. Instead, we sin because we are sinners. It's what we are. It's what we do. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. We have this problem that's more than just external behavior. We have this internal state of being, this sinfulness. We're hostile in our minds, and it alienates us from God. And in fact, it sets us in direct opposition to God. Now, we can try to justify ourselves with at least I statements. And we have a strong habit of this, and I do this all the time. At least I don't go to rated R movies. At least I don't drink or do drugs. At least I don't sleep around. At least I go to church more than Johnny House back there. Actually, none of us probably go come here more than Johnny does. Uh, at least I don't cuss and go to the blind pig like Jane Seawright back there on the back row. I only use made-up swear words. I, uh, son of a biscuit eater, fish sticks, uh, shiitake mushrooms. I just say those things instead of saying the real bad words, right? Uh, that's what we do. We try to minimize our own sinful nature by pointing out the sins of others or try to make ourselves look good with this uh, personal high sense of morality that we have. Being good or following a set of rules doesn't change what's inside us, though. In the light of God's holiness, all of our best efforts, according to Isaiah 64, 6 and Romans 3, 10, are like filthy Rags. That's our best work. It's like filthy rags before God. Resting on the laurels of my own at least eyes is like me being in a room with Chipper Jones and Hank Aaron and boasting about the time I went four for four in a church league softball game. <laughs> Some of y'all have heard me do that, haven't you? That's why you're laughing. Sin is more than just something we do wrong. Chuck DeGroat writes that it's a complex matrix of motivation and attitude and actions. Sin is a problem that's inside of every single one of us. Romans 3.23 said that all of us, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us miss the mark. So what does Jesus do with our sin? This is what the text says. He actively, presently, and continually takes it away. Now, this might sound a little redundant here. It might sound like I'm about to talk about the same thing again, but what I want you to do is really focus a little bit. And there's an important word here, and if you write in your Bibles or if you have one of our Book of John journals from the back, um, you, can, you can write in it. It's not a sin to write in your Bible. God's not going to throw lightning at you if you write in your Bible, I promise you. Some people prefer not to do it. That's okay. Uh, mine is full of highlighting and, 
and, and underlining mostly the verses I really like that make me feel good. Uh, but sometimes we have to look at other things too. Uh, there, there's a word in this verse that seems so insignificant, but it's packed with power. And I want you to underline it or circle it. This word takes. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist doesn't say, Behold the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world at a later date. Even though that would have made sense for him to say at the time, because Jesus has not died on the cross yet in the timeline of the story. And it would have even made sense for John the Apostle, who is writing this story, to speak of it in the past tense, because he's writing this from memory. And it would have been reasonable for him to write, Behold the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. But instead of using a future tense or a past tense, John uses a present participle. Jesus takes away the sin of the world. Now the implication here is that this is a right now ongoing action. One of the great attributes of God that we find in Scripture is that he's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. Even when we're tempted to sin, even when we give in to our sins, God is present. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. And that sounds terrifying. This is a holy and righteous God that will not tolerate sin and punishes sin and is fully present and not only seeing what we're doing as an omnipresent God, but also knowing every sinful thought and every whispered curse as an omniscient and all-knowing God. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. We can't hide anything from God. Job 34.21 says, His eyes are on the ways of men. He sees their every step. Jeremiah 16.17 drives the point home and says, My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. God knows every temptation, every sin, every mistake, and every moral failure. God sees and knows everything. And that doesn't sound hopeful to somebody who's really good at sinning like me. But Jesus didn't die on the cross just to forgive some of our sins. And then if you sin again, he's going to turn into the elf on the shelf and he's going to take away Christmas gifts if you sin anymore, right? He's, he's not going to do that. He's not an angry God who throws lightning bolts and flattens your tires if you do something wrong. He's actively and presently engaged in taking away your sins and forgiving us for our sins all the time. He has an enduring commitment to sinners like me and sinners like you, even when we fail him. He has one unrelenting stance toward his children. He loves us, and he loves us with a Hebrews 13, 5, never leaving, never forsaking love. Jonathan David Helser wrote a line in a song about it that said, I heard about a man with holes in his hands. He can hide mountains of sin in them. The good news of the gospel isn't that God rewards those that have perfect behavior. The good news 
is that even though we sin, God gave his son Jesus to die on the cross as punishment for our sins so that we don't have to fear God's constant presence, but instead we can enjoy this God who never leaves us and constantly pursues us with a furious love that won't give up on us and won't let go of us and is actively and presently forgiving us for our sins 24-7. So how does Jesus take away our sin? By being the lamb. Make no mistake about it. God does not overlook sin. He does not dismiss it. He doesn't grin and shake his head at it. Nor does God's definition of sin change according to cultural trends or popular opinions or how you feel about it. Do y'all get me here? Because I know I just made somebody mad. God's definition of sin has not changed from the time the Bible was written to today. Ray Pritchard wrote that God has a settled hostility towards sin in every manifestation. In other words, God's holiness cannot and will not exist with sin and coexist with sin in any form whatsoever. God has a holy and consistent hatred of everything that is unholy. Sin must be dealt with in order for unholy man to be in a relationship with a holy God. In Leviticus 4, anyone who was guilty would confess their sins. And then the high priest would offer a lamb without blemish on the altar of God as an offering to atone for the sins of the people. And the blood of the lamb was accepted by God as what they called a covering or atonement for the sin of the people. By sprinkling this blood on the altar, the sins of the people were considered to be covered because this sacrifice of blood turned away the wrath of God. Now, this is meaningful because it teaches us that death, innocent blood, is the only thing that can pay the price for sin. It's an idea called propitiation, a word that means a gift offered to pay the price for sins. In this case, blood. Romans 5.12 says that when sin came into the world, so did death. The book of Genesis paints this horrible picture of God punishing Adam and Eve as, and driving them from the Garden of Eden as punishment for their sin. And he goes on to tell us though that God felt compassion for them and he killed an animal to make cl- clothing for them to cover their nakedness and shame. God's been in the business of covering sin for us ever since creation began. As Jesus was dying on the cross, at the point when his pain was most intense, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, all the wrath of God came crashing down on him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake he made Jesus to be sin 
even though Jesus knew no sin. All the punishment for all the sins of all eternity was poured out on Jesus. And through the shedding of his blood, he became a propitiation, a payment for our sins. He satisfied the debt we owed for our sinful nature. The great song in Christ alone sings the gospel when it says, On the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. So why did Jesus, why did Jesus become the lamb that takes away the sins of the world? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because God is a God of immeasurable holiness. And that sin nature inside of us is immeasurable too. But God is also a merciful God. Listen to this from Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And that last line there really strikes me. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows that we have this internal sin problem, that we aren't built of the most reliable material on the inside. So he has compassion for us. And he shows us mercy. Even when we deserve punishment, for being sinners. Listen, you can have a chest full of Sunday school attendance pens and you can get baptized and you can read the Bible every day and you can quit smoking and drinking and gossiping, but none of that will turn away the wrath of God. Ray Pritchard wrote, the wonder of propitiation is that the offended party, God, has every right to be angry at sinners himself, but instead he offers the gift. Jesus on the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to turn away his wrath, thus making it possible for guilty sinners to be forgiven. The cross is the place where grace and wrath meet. When we come to God through the cross, we come to a friendly Father and not to an angry God. Because of the cross, because Jesus was the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world, God's justice is satisfied. Because of the cross, the price for our sins has been paid. Because of the cross, 
God's wrath has been turned away from us. Because of the cross, salvation is available to anyone who trusts in the love of God. And our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. That's how far God takes our sins from us. With the blood of Jesus Christ, every sin for all who will believe, past, present, and future sins is paid for. For those who trust in his love, their sins are covered forever. The heart of the gospel is this. Romans 5, 8. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. God's holiness demands that sin be punished. God's grace provides the lamb, the sacrifice. What God demands, he supplies. So salvation is a gift from God. It costs Jesus everything. It costs us nothing but to trust him. Trust him. There's no sin you can avoid or no, no good you can do that would ever make you good enough. Following all the rules isn't an internal fix. It's not a heart change. It's just behavior modification. And that's not good news at all. All you have to do is trust in his love and that internal sin nature, that, that faulty frame inside of you is gone. Romans 3 says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, a payment by his blood to be received by faith. All we have to do is trust him. And God did this in verse 26 of Romans 3. It says God did this to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just. He will not tolerate sin. And God is the justifier. He covers our sins with the blood of Christ so that we can enjoy Him forever. The cross is the place where God's persistent, ever-present, ongoing forgiveness for sinners and God's hostility towards sin meets. N.T. Wright asked the question, what would God look like if he were to become human and live among us? And he answered, I think he would look very much like Jesus of Nazareth and never more so than in the moments when he hung dying upon the cross. So we'll close with this. Whose sin does Jesus take away? The text said, the world. John three sixteen and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, if Jesus... It said right there in that text, for God so loved the Jews, nobody would have been surprised because Deuteronomy 7, 7 says that God chose the Jews as his people and set his love on them. 
If he had said, for God so loved everyone that follows the rules to a T and never sins or does anything wrong, nobody would have batted an eyelash. Because Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 9 and 10 says that God takes great delight in people who obey his voice. But Jesus uses a term here, the same term that John uses back in our text today, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This Greek word cosmos with a K, we've heard that word before. When we say that word, we mean everything in the universe. But in the context Jesus is saying here, he means everyone who believes on his name. Not just the Jews, but a broader kind of love. Even the Gentiles. Not just people who are perfect, even the sinners. So when John uses this term in today's text, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then later on Jesus said, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. He's saying that God's love extends, according to Revelation 5, 9, to every tribe and nation. And according to Romans 5, 8, and 10, that love also extends to enemies of God. It's a scandalous love that extends even to people who don't attend church. Even to people you don't like. Even to people who don't vote the same way you you do. Even to illegal aliens and people uh, who who use meth. And even Baptist deacons. Maybe. Uh, I'm not sure on that one yet. There's no status excluded. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. When John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he doesn't mean that every person in the world is saved. He means every person in the world, Jew or Gentile, will be saved if they believe in Jesus and follow him. If they believe... Their sin has been taken away by the Lamb. If they believe, God's wrath has been removed by the Lamb. Everyone in this room is a sinner deserving of God's wrath. I had a conversation with someone a while back who who said they could not wrap their brains around the idea that a loving God would send anybody to hell because that's just not fair. And I've told y'all this before. You know where I'm going, Jane. God's not fair. He's not fair. The wonder of the love of God is not that he sends people to hell, but that he allows anyone into heaven at all. We're all sinners. None of us deserve it. And you know what? God's not fair. He pours out the punishment we deserve on Jesus, who did nothing wrong. Nothing. We all deserve God's wrath. There's only one way to have your sins, past, present, and future, taken away. So you don't have to fear that wrath anymore. The only way is to believe in Jesus. Jesus himself said it in John 8, 24. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. All you have to do is believe. And if you believe, 1 John 1, 7 says that the blood of Jesus cleanses you. From your sins. 
The gospel is not a list of commands you have to follow in order to get in good with God. That's just religion. Religion says, this is what I do for God. But being a Christian is different. Being a Christian is about believing that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Religion says, this is what I do for God. Christianity says, this is what God has done for me. Ephesians 2.1 describes us without Jesus as dead in our trespasses. A dead man cannot do CPR on himself. No amount of doing good or avoiding bad in your life will save you from your sins. Knowing our helpless condition, though, God sent his son Jesus to take the death sentence that we deserve. He puts all the blame on Jesus for all the wrong we've done or ever will do, and all we have to do is believe. All we have to do is trust him. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. Jared Wilson wrote a book called The Imperfect Disciple, and in it he said, Jesus was born in a nasty barn. He grew up in a dirty world. He got baptized in a muddy river. He put his hands on the oozing wounds of lepers. He let whores brush his hair and soldiers pull it out. He went to dinner with dirtbags, both religious and irreligious. His closest friends were a collection of crude fishermen and cultural traders. He felt the spit of Pharisees on his face and the metal hooks of the jailer's whip in the flesh of his back. He got sweaty and dirty and bloody, and he took all of the sin and mess of the world onto himself, onto the cross to which he was nailed naked. In his work and in his words, Jesus is making promises to the beaten, the torn, the broken, the depressed, the desperate, the poor, the orphan, the abandoned, the cheated, the betrayed, the accused, and the left behind. He is, believe it or not, promising to fix it all.